Let's pray. Father, we come before you acknowledging other than we are. Would condescend and come down and have so much boundless mercy for his people. And so, Lord, we thank you for that mercy, for that grace, and we confess now that we are in desperate need every day of your mercy to renew us, to revive us, to instruct us, to teach us, to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Father, we pray now that you would help us to see in the example of this individual, this person, this great hero of the faith, Enoch, you would in his life instruct us in our life for our personal devotion and our walk with you, O Lord. We have no greater calling, we have no greater purpose, and we have no greater ambition than to walk closely with the Lord and humbly with the Lord. So help us, Lord. Give us that humility of mind. Give us that lowliness. Give us that temperament, Lord. Help us to humble ourselves beneath the mighty hand of God that we would be exalted in due time. We pray all these things in the wonderful name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we are continuing through the book of Hebrews, and we come now to the example of Enoch, which if you were here last week, uh, we looked at the example of Abel and uh, Enoch, perhaps even a more mysterious person than Abel. Uh, even less material, in a sense, is found with regards to this individual in Scripture. And what I want to highlight, because we've been looking at what I've called the power of primitive faith, because we are in the, the really primitive stages of the Word of God in the history of Revelation. And so what I want to do with each one of these profiles is I want to take the individual and I want to try to extract what may be the main virtue that is being underli- underlined for us so that we can benefit from his, uh, from his example, as Hebrews even tells us to do that. And so what I want to look at is, just like we looked at last week in terms of Abel, that he had uh, offered a better sacrifice to God. And so we looked at what are some of the, what are some of the characteristics of, 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 of true or genuine worship? Well, today I want to look at what are some distinguishing characteristics or marks of true devotion to God. And I zero in on the word devotion because it says about Enoch that Enoch walked with God, that Enoch was pleasing to God and that God took him, that God took him. And so I thought, we need this today. Um... On my heart, here as of late, I would say maybe the last few years, I've really been pondering um, what I can maybe feel and, and, and assess and what I can um, sort of see going on in the church as a lack of piety. Maybe it's because I read a lot of the Puritans. But there just seems to be a lack in the desire for pious living for holy living. Uh, everything in the church, let's be honest, everything in the church has become about marketing. Everything in the church has become about consumerism. Everything in the church has become about technology. Everything in the church has become about gaining a platform of some kind. But really, in the shuffle of all the modernity, how much piety is there really going on? 
Because what we learn from Enoch's life and from the life of all of these saints is that holiness is really what God wants out of everyone. That's really what God wants. He wants us, as uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 tells us, He wants us to go on perfecting holiness in the sight of God. He didn't say perfect your techniques. He didn't say perfect your media ministry. He didn't say perfect your you know technology, whatever it may be. He said perfecting holiness in the sight of God or in the fear of God. Therefore, Enoch's example to us is a great refreshing, it's a breath of fresh air that we see in the life of such a primitive person in Scripture, in their pages of Scripture, someone who was seemingly totally devoted to God. And those, those are the individuals that really should comprise the heroes of the faith for us. The heroes of the faith. Let me point out four distinguishing characteristics or marks of true devotion. Number one, very basic, very foundational, very fundamental, uh, and that is, you know, we've looked at the book of Hebrews now for some time and we've gone through a lot of very thick and dense and deep covenantal theology because that's what Hebrews is all about, is about the covenantal supremacy of Jesus Christ. So now we're in some practical stuff. Now we're in some what's known as practical theology. And being devoted to God is as practical as it gets. And my first point is even more practical than that. Number one, a true mark of true devotion is this. That, or just using Enoch as an example of Enoch's devotion. Enoch's devotion is based on a desire, desire to be pleasing to God. Now, I make this observation because if you look at the text, look at verse 5 again with me. We are, well, we have an assessment of who Enoch was, not by the fact that someone is commenting about Enoch. It's not that someone is saying something about Enoch. It's not just something that we have some record, a historical record, but listen to what is being said. Like Abel, it says that, that he obtained the witness that before he was taken up, he was pleasing to God. See, he obtained this reputation. I would say that he was like Abel. He was, he obtained the testimony by God. It was God testifying about uh, Enoch, about Abel, that these men were righteous. That gets to a very fundamental level. On a very fundamental level, the idea that their desires, their motives were pure in their pursuit of God. This was, in other words, their ultimate ambition in life was to be pleasing to God. So for us, we need to ask the question, do we have as an optimum motive of our lives to be pleasing to our God? Is that really what drives us, what propels us, what provokes us, what moves us forward? Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, it is this great virtue of being pleasing to God and the desire to do so that the Apostle Paul would pray over all of us in the church. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, you see this in his prayer. He says there that he asks, he asks first 
And then he gives him the reason why he's asking. So he's asking for certain benefits to become a reality in the life of the believer. He says, I ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then here is the virtue that should follow. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And and, and what does that look like? Well, this is sort of an explanation of that. To be pleasing to Him in all respects. And and, and how are we going to do that? Here it is. It explains it even further. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Why do we do Sunday seminary the way that we do it? Why do we go so deep and drill down so deep into theology and and interact? And why am I up there like a maniac sometimes trying to see? Do you get it? Because we are to increase in the knowledge of God. Just like the book of Hebrews told us earlier, at some point in your Christian life, listen, Christian, if you are a Christian, at some point in your Christian life, being pleasing to the Lord means you got to get off the milk and get onto the meat. God wants you to mature. He wants you to grow. He wants you to grow up in all aspects into Christ, who is the head, head of the church. And that's what it means. And that's what Paul means for us to, 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 to grow, to, to increase in the knowledge of God, to be pleasing to Him in all respects, to have a walk that is worthy. How do you know that you're pleasing to God? Well, do you have a walk that is worthy of the Lord? How do you know that you have a walk that is worthy of the Lord? That is worthy of the Lord. It's very simple because it boils down to whether or not you are living up to His standards. Those are not hidden. These are not mysterious. These things are not hidden from us. The will of God is not something nebulous or secretive or hidden or mystical that we have to sort of seek out. The will of God, at least in terms of what He requires of us, is objective. It is revealed. It is clear. It is perspicuous. It is obvious in many ways because He has revealed these things to us. Turn with me now to Hebrews 13. Kind of the end of the book. Go to the end of the book and you'll see this very same dynamic at work. Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 20. I love this because in in, in the practical level, which is where we're at, right? He's not only giving us our obligation, but He's also showing us the practical outworking of these things. I love it. Leaving no mystery of of what this is for. Look at uh, verse 20. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. In other words, here's his, um, here's what he's requesting. May he equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. I take that as synonymous, synonymous to do his will. What is pleasing in his sight, these are Synonymous statements. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. We know what God's will is. It's His revealed will. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It is to conform our lives and our minds to the revealed Word of God. Scripture directs us everywhere to do good. Notice that that's what Hebrews just said. To equip you to do every good thing. Remarkable, right? 
This gets back to what we talked about last week, a little bit about bearing fruit. Um, the concept of bearing fruit is actually a very deep covenantal idea. It's rooted in Isaiah chapter 5 where God, He had conditioned and He had cultivated Israel and He had He had hewned out, as it were, like a gardener. He was out there like a vine dresser. He was out there cultivating Israel like land. He was providing them all the nutrients, all the nourishment. He, he facilitated everything they needed for growth. And what does it say? But they only bore sour grapes. Jesus takes that language of bearing fruit and He utilizes it in His own way. In John chapter 15, and He calls us to bear fruit and He says, My Father is glorified in this. You want to do His will. It says, His Father is glorified in this, that you bear much fruit. Our lives as Christians should be so productive. Are you bored? I was reading an article this week about being bored in Christianity today. Are you bored in Christianity today? That is because you are not productive. That is because you're not bearing fruit as you ought to. That's because you're not doing God's will. We should be like busy little bees doing the work of God in His kingdom. Glorifying God through good works. That is what's pleasing to Him. Oh, I can spend the whole day talking about that, but I'll never finish. Let's go to the second point. Not only Enoch's devotion shows us the desire that he had to be pleasing to God and oh, the weight of that, the weight of that. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says that our ultimate ambition is to be pleasing to Him. But it's more than that. We see his devotion also, Enoch's devotion and what is true devotion by his translation from the world, from the world because he was taken out if you notice what it says there, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. See that? That is so remarkable. Now turn with me to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. Because in Genesis chapter 5 is where we kind of get the account of Enoch after all. It goes back to that. He's smack dab in the middle of a genealogy as the genealogy is being developed until we alas arrive at uh, Abraham. And how we get there and everything else. But it begins here in Jared in verse 19. Genesis 5.19. Jared lived. Now get, to the, get this now. Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch. And you think you have pains, aches and pains in the morning. <laughs> you imagine at 800 what kind of aches and pains you'd be going through in the morning. You need some pretty serious supplements for that. He had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962, and he died. See that? Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. By the way, Methuselah outlived Enoch by, uh, by many, many centuries, by the way. Then Enoch walked with God. You see that there? Oh, let that sink down. He walked with God. 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Very amazing. He had his own personal custom rapture. <laughs> his own personal rapture. He was out of here. Right? But Enoch was a great example. He was an example of someone 
And really, what is God saying in the context of this? When God is translating Enoch out of here, what is God saying about Enoch? He's saying Enoch doesn't belong here. And neither do you. So this challenges us in what the book of Hebrews, just jump down to verse 13, and really all throughout Scripture, of what it means to live as a pilgrim, to live as a sojourner. We are not good at this, and we need to get better at it. All of us, if we are honest and we are confessing openly before God, we have way too many hooks in this world. We are too attached. We identify way too deeply with the world's ways, the world's entertainments, the world's fashions, the world's customs, the world's standards. But Enoch didn't belong here because God took him. Look at verse 13. All of these, including Enoch... Hebrews 11.13, all of these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. You know, to be an exile means you're not in your house, you're not in your home country. It means you don't belong where you're at. First Peter says the same thing. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds that may observe them and glorify God in the day of visitation. Perhaps God would want to visit them with salvation and your conduct as a sojourner, a pilgrim, an exile in this world may be the thing that God uses either to save them or it may be if you were not a good example, that could trip them up. That's what he's saying. But the psalmist identified with this very thing when he said, I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. You see what the, you see what the psalmist is saying there? I need refuge. I need somewhere where I belong because I don't belong anywhere. I don't belong at work. I don't belong around my peers. I don't belong with my family. I don't belong in my city, in my town, in my country. I don't belong with the way the world wants to conduct things anymore. I'm not popular here. Nobody likes my standards, my morality, my holiness, my religiosity, my spirituality. Nobody likes my Christianity. And we're surprised why? (laughs) After all, the Bible calls us to live as aliens, as exiles. We don't belong here. And that's why John says in 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17, Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. What is John graciously doing to us? He's telling us, he's preparing us, don't get so fixated on this world. Don't get so fixated with all the trinkets and offerings and all the lucraments that you can get. Don't get so fixated with all the all the perks and all the gimmicks and all the advertisements and all the sales and all the fashions that blow through like the wind. Don't become so impressed with this world. Oh, God has something far more for us, right? Oh, glorious day. When that day comes... Oh, the overwhelming glory that will be ours as 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it will not even be comparable to anything that you ever suffered here. The worst suffering that you ever saw. Worst suffering. There was a country singer that her mind escapes me at the minute. My wife was following her. She had cancer and was diminishing. And now, you know, I don't know if you see this, but a lot of times when people have terminal illnesses, they'll begin to document everything through Facebook and through YouTube and videos. And you literally can now start seeing people dwindle and, and they're just fading and fading and fading until they're dead. Well, this Christian country singer, uh, worship singer, really, um, she faded and she was beautiful and her family was beautiful and her children were beautiful and she had lived a beautiful life and she had such a horrible end. And that is because no matter how good it gets in this life, death will remind you that you do not belong here. And death will remind you that God has something far greater for you than the grave. I preach to college students, and I'm getting ready to head back to UNT here pretty soon. But I, I preach to college students, and you know, of course, they're immortal, right? They're going to live forever, right? They're just strong, and they're all, they're all, they all think that they just have forever to live. I tell them, look, God, you, listen, you were not created just to live for a little short, short while on this earth and then die and go into the ground and be eaten by worms. Think of your mortality. If you don't think about your mortality, you will not want, you will not covet what Enoch had, the translation out of this world and into the next. Oh, I tell you, Christians should have this sort of, as far as the world is concerned, we should have a very weird obsession with death. We should look forward to it. We should long for it. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but it's not as crazy as what Paul says. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, that, that wasn't some superficial Christian slogan that Paul was using because it sounded good to post it on Facebook. No, that was... That was real for the Apostle Paul. He could savor it. He could taste it. More of him, less of me. More of him, less of earth. Give it to me now. But he said, it is more needful for me to remain on here with you. What a bummer. (laughs) I could just see Paul getting all caught up. Yes, yes, to die is gain. And the Lord says, no, you will continue on for some more time. With them. Which leads me to my next point. Don't think that because Enoch was translated out of this world and into the next, that he had some sort of easy path to glory. Remember what Genesis just told us. Maybe Enoch, because it says that after Enoch at 65 became the father of Methuselah, then it says, then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became his father. So what that means is, is that Enoch for 300 years had to undergo and persevere in the Christian life. Don't you ever, don't you ever get the sensation of, Lord, I just wish you'd be over sometimes. <laughs> right? Your trials will do that to you, right? Trials would be like, I, I don't think I could do any more of this. I, There's a hymn that says, for me, the war has been sore and long. For others, it seems easy, but not for me. And sometimes, as Calvin said, our sanctification can look like an agonizing process. The war with the flesh and the world and the devil. 
But Enoch did not short-circuit the sanctification process. He walked with God through the years, literally through the centuries. Enoch walked with God. God calls us to the very same thing, to endure. Bear in mind this, brothers and sisters, the hostility of the world could not pry away the hope of Enoch, the hope that he had, the hope of heaven. At the same time, the hostility of the world around him could not compromise his devotion to the Lord. We are, in essence, to be living lives that are exemplary in this place. Why does God leave us here? He saves us. He redeems us. He fills us with His Spirit. He promises us. And He gives us an inheritance. And so why does God just leave us here for another 50, 60, 70 years after that, depending on when you get saved? He does it because He wants to purify us. He does it because He wants a people that are pure Pure possession. He wants to purify us through our trials. And therefore, we need to, like Jesus said, we must be like a city set on a hill, not hidden. We need to let our light shine in the world so that men will see our good works and they will glorify God in heaven just like Enoch. For 300 years, he shone. He shone like an example He lived an exemplary life. He had a testimony. God had testified about And no doubt those around him knew and they understood that Enoch was a righteous man. As a matter of fact, when it comes to the material that we have concerning Enoch, we don't have much. If you look in the Bible, you look in your concordance, there really isn't a whole lot of material on the person Enoch. But you know what? We have other writings like rabbinical tradition. We also have pseudepigraphal works, uh, apocryphal works that speak of Enoch. And as a matter of fact, here, turn with me, if you would, to Jude 14. As a matter of fact, one of the authors of Scripture, Jude, actually cites a pseudepigraphal work. Pseudepigrapha is just an ancient intertestamental work, really, that surrounding the first century. And it's pseudepigraphal because pseudo-false, pigro uh, writing, which basically means that somebody falsely wrote something, like a forgery, right? And in many of these books, like First Enoch or the Book of Jubilees, Enoch appears. And there, and actually here in the Book of Jude, he is quoting the Book of Enoch, and he uses this as saying that basically what is recorded in First Enoch is actually... True, and it actually is a, is a proper, it is a correct reflection of who Enoch was. Look at verse 14. It was also about these men that Enoch, and who are these men? These men are false teachers, and this is why this is going to become very important. That Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam, literally the word is seventh from Adam. If you count Adam and if you count Enoch, it's seven. He prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him, against the Lord. These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts, speaking arrogantly, flattering people with for the sake of gaining an advantage. Why do I quote this? I want to quote this because I want to 
tell you that part and parcel of Enoch's sanctification was that Enoch was not, you know, some superficial kind of believer. Just we get an idea. Enoch walked with God. Oh, he had this, you know, almost this Edenic sort of life where he just walked with God in the cool of the day. No, 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 no. Enoch was an apologist. Enoch was a preacher. He was an evangelist. He preached against the culture. He testified against his world, against the sin of the world. He, he, he was not afraid to combat false teaching. And therefore, real genuine faith, if it is real genuine faith, brothers and sisters, it is not some happy-go-lucky, gullible, superficial, all-inclusive, uncritical, indiscriminate, non-discerning kind of faith. It is not that. It is quite the opposite. Even though, of course, Enoch would never engage in vitriol or never engage in carnal language, but nevertheless, he did not lack a theological spine. He had a spine. And he exposed the darkness in his world. He was not afraid, as Jude says, to contend earnestly for the faith. He did it. And that is how he persevered to the end. There's something else that we gain from Enoch's example of his devotion, and that is this. That we see in Enoch what we see in all genuine saving faith. And that is a commitment to the character of God. Look back at Hebrews. Verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. This is kind of a transitional uh, verse. And this happens periodically in the book of, uh, in the chapter of, uh, chapter 11 of Hebrews, where, if you would, the author sort of comes up for air. He sort of digresses to make a statement, actually to teach a principle. We look at the example that is given here of the creation of the world. We see an example of the, of the, of the faith of Abel. We see an example of the faith of Enoch. And then the author wants to give us a principle. He wants to lay out a doctrine. And the doctrine is this, that without faith it is impossible to please God. That is a universal truth that binds us all together, going all the way back to the primitive faith of the earliest saints of God. It is not possible for Adam and Eve to be blessed without faith, to come to God without faith. It is not possible for Noah to please God without faith. It is not possible for Abraham to please God without faith. It is not possible for Isaiah, for John, for Paul, for you, for me, for Spurgeon, for Edwards. It is not possible for anyone to be pleasing to God without faith. And there's more here. I say that He had a commitment to the character of God because there are three, I believe, three attributes that are at stake here. Did you notice? It says it is impossible to please him. So I want to point out three attributes that with that are an infringement upon these attributes without faith. Number one, his holiness, his holiness. Why his holiness? Because any time you're talking about being pleasing to God, remember, you are talking about following God's commandments. God is holy. God is just. 
And He gives us standards. And He gives us His law that we would obey. Therefore, to please God is to acknowledge that God is holy. That God is holy. So much today that's done in the name of religion, in the name of faith. Oh, I tell you, I wish I could just take the word faith out of politics, don't you? He's a man of faith. What does that mean? Right? As he's affirming, you know, homosexual marriage or whatever it is. Right? This idea of faith, I've talked about this before. It's kind of a pet peeve of mine. I'm a man of strong faith. I have faith. I believe in faith. The Bible doesn't call us to believe in faith, folks. The Bible calls us to believe in God. And to believe in a particular God, and I'll get to that next, because that's the next attribute that is infringed upon when we don't have faith. Notice, we infringe upon the existence of God. Oh, wish, wish that I could do an entire ver- entire sermon just on the existence of God. I just recently purchased um, a book by Thomas Manton on Hebrews 11. It's about 700 pages, just on Hebrews 11. Fine print. It's so glorious. It's one page. If you can stomach it. I mean, it's just, if you have nothing to do for the next 12 years, it's just a great book. Pick it up, read it, meditate on it, listen to his observations. It's, it's fantastic. I mean, I just, I just pale in comparison to what he's done in that book. But, but anyway, because the existence of God is so big. Now, when we think of God's existence, immediately we go to the we go to the subject of atheism. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. Why? Because for he who comes to God must believe that he is. And the Greek stops right there before the conjunction, chi, and the rest of it. So the author of Hebrews really wants us to pause here. Wow. Without faith... It is impossible to please Him because, number one, faith by faith is how you trust in the existence of God. It is how you acknowledge that God exists. Every kind of atheism is condemned and unacceptable to God. Kinds of atheism. The, uh, the, larger, um, the larger catechism, Westminster Catechism, which is a commentary that is um, oh, that was written by Johannes Voss, uh, actually identifies three different kinds of atheism, and this is this is very instructional for us because we think atheism simply means well you don't believe in God right I mean that's it what what more is there to it Well he brings up three different aspects of atheism that I think are really good number one theoretical atheism number two virtual atheism and number three practical atheism. Now, on a theoretical level, this is the most debased uh, form of atheism. It is the complete uh, 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 philosophical rejection of God or gods of any kind. Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. To say that there is no God is to surrender reason itself because it's to surrender the source, the foundation of reason itself. That's why you are a fool. Because if you surrender faith in God, you surrender faith in everything. Um, but there's more than that. And you know about that type of atheism. But what about virtual atheism? On the virtual level, a person may profess to believe in a God, but not the true and living God. 
as revealed in Scripture. So here you would lump in all false uh, religions, all false cults, all false forms of spirituality that have some espoused notion of God. I don't know about you, but suddenly I have a lot of new Hindu neighbors. Anybody identify with that? Right? Praise God. The mission field is here. Don't even need to go to India. It's a long ways anyway. One of my neighbors has a uh, has an idol in their front yard to their to their god, Ganesh, or Ganesh, the Hindu god, the elephant god, and uh, that that's one god among a pantheon of millions of gods that Hindus believe in. And uh, and my Hindu neighbors will tell me, oh, I respect all the gods, all of them, including yours. What they have, even though they espouse to believe in God and espouse themselves not to be atheists, is they have virtual atheism. They are virtually atheists by by the fact that they don't believe in the true and living God. Remember, we are talking not about what people profess or not about how people identify. We are talking about what God is pleased with. God is not pleased with virtual atheism. It does not matter that you say that you believe in God, the Creator, when your God is Allah. As far as God is concerned, you may as well be a theoretical atheist because it doesn't matter. Your belief and your faith in a pagan deity is just as bad. But there's one more. Finally, practical atheism. And this is actually the most pernicious, most common And that is when a person slips into a form of thinking and living where they profess or where they think they believe in God or they say they believe in God or they say they even follow God, but in fact, they live totally indifferent to God. They may say they grew up in a Christian home, but do not live according to Christ. They may say that they're very religious, but they don't follow the Word of God. They don't follow God's commands. Very basic. The point of it is this. God rejects all of it. So when it says, without faith it is impossible to please Him, we are talking about the true and living God. For he who comes to the true and living God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Last attribute. God's Faithfulness. When we fail to have faith in God, we are infringing upon His faithfulness. In a sense, this is all part of His benevolence. That God is good. That He is a good God because He is a rewarder of those that seek Him. Aren't you glad God is a rewarder of people who seek Him? After all, He is God. I remind you, He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is sovereign. God can do whatever He pleases and no one can question Him whatsoever. Psalm 15, verse 3, God's, God sits in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. Some people are offended at that. I relish it. I think it's glorious. It's beautiful. It, it beautifies who God is to me, that He is all sovereign. He does not compete for His sovereignty, sovereignty, folks. Sorry, my dear Armenian friends and brothers and sisters. 
His sovereignty is not up for grabs. But you know what? As sovereign, as holy, as transcendent, as just, as righteous as God is, He is also faithful. He's also faithful. Let me read to you. Because faith magnifies the faithfulness of God. Psalm 33 verse 4 says, For the word of the Lord is upright and all of His work is done in faithfulness. In other words, God's faithfulness permeates everything that He does for His people and for His namesake. Psalm 89 verse uh, uh, verse 8, The Lord of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord, your faithfulness surrounds you. The faithfulness of God clothes Him. It beautifies Him. It decks Him out. It bejewels Him. It makes Him who He is. That He is a faithful God. Take comfort, great comfort in that fact that what He began, He will complete. Psalm 105. Psalm 100, verse 5. The Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and His faithfulness to all generations, it does not change. What's the application in all of this for us? It's exegetical. Look at the text. It's found in the word seek. See that? He who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who Seek Him. Beautiful. It literally can be translated, the seeking ones. Or, to be even more grammatically correct, those who continually seek Him, as the present active participle would suggest. What's the point? God expects us to seek Him. I really want to challenge you today. This notion of seeking God. Jesus said, if you seek, you will find. The Lord Yahweh spoke through the prophet Amos and He said, seek Me so that you can live. There is no life apart from seeking God. The psalmist said, you said to Me, seek My face, and My heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I will seek. So the question that I want you to walk out of here today through the doors is, How's your seeking going? The word seek just means to prosecute, to persecute. It really means, in Texas vernacular, get after it. Right? Get after it. You've got to get on it. Right? I love it because one grammar actually described this term, exetusin, as a diligent seeking of something. Do you seek Him diligently? You know that? If you seek Him diligently, there are a number of things that will simply begin to fall into place. I'm not here to tell you Christianity is going to meet your felt needs, but let me tell you something. When you seek the face of the living God, when you do that, all I, 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 I will go so far as to say, I will venture out and say, I will overspeak as pastors do, and say, if you seek God diligently, all of these things will be added unto you. Don't worry about it. You just seek God. Set your face like flint to the Lord. Have a game plan. Have a strategy. 
Have a time. Have a structure. Have a commitment. Make a, carefully, make a commitment. Make a vow. Make a covenant before your God to start a new path of seeking His face. Don't shy away from seeking God and His presence. Get away. Turn everything off. All the gadgets, all the texting, all the social media. Turn the TV off. Turn everything off. Turn the internet off. Get in a corner. Turn on a lamp. Open the Bible. Open up a journal. And open up your heart. That's what I mean by seeking God. So elementary, right? But why do we forget it so easily? Or is it just me? You may think, well, you're a pastor. It's your job to seek God. (laughs) That's even more dangerous. Because it is my job to seek God, I can seek Him out of rote. Just vain repetition. Seeking God means your heart is alive to God. It is responsive. Don't forget, we are in the new covenant. He gave us not a heart of stone, brothers and sisters. He gave us a heart of flesh. A heart of flesh means one that is soft and tender and responsive and, and, and feels the influences and the impressions of the Spirit of God upon your life as you put yourself in the path of the means of grace. If you, as you take up the spiritual disciplines in your life of prayer, reading, Bible memorization, fellowship, partaking of the Lord's Supper, these things, going to church, studying God's Word, private meditation. He says, seek my face. How do we do that? What's the most basic way of doing that? Do, do what Enoch did. Walk with God. If you don't walk with God, then you're not seeking God. If you're not seeking God, then you're not walking with God. It's that simple. And I tell you, when you walk with God, guess what? You don't need a personal Pharisee following you around everywhere, making sure that you're doing all the Christian things you're supposed to be doing. When you're seeking God, guess what? You're no longer doing it for mommy and daddy. When you're seeking God, you're no longer doing it to appease your spouse. When you're doing, when you're seeking God, you're not doing it just because that's what the ministry demands. When you're seeking God, it means that you are in a state of constant communion with God as Jude himself, and I'll leave you with this verse in the book of Jude. Where's the book of Jude? There's the book of Jude. Keep yourself in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Our walk with God, if we're going to be like Enoch, we have to be obsessed with God, folks. We need to be, in, we need to be intoxicated with Him. We need to be enraptured with Him. We need to be caught up in Him. He needs to be our, He needs to be our lover of our souls. He needs to be the one that does it for us. He needs to be everything. He needs, we need an all-encompassing, all-engulfing vision of the beauty of God in our lives. If not, we will get bored. If not, we will look to ourselves and we will not like what we see. And we will take our hand off the plow and we will no longer walk with Him. Time after time after time. People that take their eyes off of the Lord and onto themselves or onto everything else. What do you think happens when that happens? 
Do you end up standing outside protesting churches? Sorry, I had to do it. You do. You end up getting involved with something other than the humble, consistent, habitual life of sanctification that God calls us to. To walk humbly before the Lord. To love mercy. To do justly. 